Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. <laughs> what are you laughing about? Your little dance. Oh, it's my pre-show dance. I have a little ritual. I like it. You have a warm-up ritual. You have vocal exercises. I don't do that every time, and I know that you're trying to perpetuate that idea, but I don't. I do an interpretive dance number. <laughs> it is beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. We're back from our uh, two weeks in Ecuador, researching bizarre and strange things that we can talk about, and what a trip that was. That oh my was gosh. fun. It was amazing and wonderful, and I can't wait to go back, and I want to go to all the places. All the places. We went to the uh, Extreme Art Museum in right. Cuenca, yeah. Ecuador, and saw some uh, really disturbing imagery. It was amazing. <laughs> and the sink that looked like a tiny little gnome man was peeing on you. Yes, yes. You went into the uh, men's bathroom, and instead of a faucet, it was like a weird little gnome man, and you stuck your hands in his urine stream. Yep. It was magical. It was um, magic. We spoke with one of the proprietors and in broken English. She spoke to us, speaking to her in broken Spanish. And uh, she said, the, the, the people of this town do not always appreciate what we do here. <laughs> and yep. we were like, we get it. Yeah. <laughs> we get it. And speaking of the language barrier, uh, we both speak Spanglish mm -hmm. and not very well. Well, you speak it better than I do. Well, but the longer we were there, the more emboldened I became, mm -hmm. and I started trying to foolishly put sentences together. I, I asked somebody, because we had dog treats with us, because there were a lot of stray dogs in Ecuador, and I asked somebody if uh, we could feed their dog, but I used the wrong word. Mm. <clears throat> Apparently, I had asked if I could eat their dog. Right. And that's frowned upon. It's. Uh, it was also an interesting trip for me in that, um, you know, I... I don't sleep well in high altitude. I guess I don't get altitude sickness in the way that a lot of people do. I don't get nauseated. I don't get as out of breath as you do. Uh, but I do not sleep. And uh, I was just exhausted. By the end of our trip, I was just exhausted. And we had long flights home. And one of them was especially bad. And I was just starting to feel a little delirious. Mm. So I went back. All the way to the back of the airplane, which was one of those big ones. What is it? Like a, a big, big plane? The three. one with, yeah, with the, with the middle row. With the middle row, exactly. Yeah. Mm. So I went all the way back to use the restroom, and there were people in there. So I had to wait, and I waited in the very, very back part where the airline attendants keep, like, the food and stuff. But there's also the back doors, 
And there was no one else back there. And I was just standing there next to these doors, these exits of a plane. And I started to have these like, you know, um, how Maria Bamford's talked about aggressive, unwanted thoughts. Yes. Like I started to have like invasive thoughts about like just opening the door. <laughs> and I was like, you need to get some sleep. Yeah, you really need to sleep I was just standing better. there thinking, what if I'm doing it right now and I don't think I'm doing it? And I was like, it's not good at all. That's alarming. Man, I need some peanuts. Stat. TheBoxOfOddities.com is our website. Thank you for all the messages we've been getting at curator at TheBoxOfOddities.com. And, of course, on all of the uh, social media. It's been fantastic. We do have some catching up to do because it was hard with, you know, being in Ecuador and, and the travel back. And we have a little bit of catching up to do. And if we haven't gotten back to you, terribly sorry. Yes, we'll get to it as soon as possible. I have a topic today that uh, that's very personal to me. Today we're going to talk about what it's like to be in a coma. I had a coma when I was six. I went into a coma. I had one. It's like, yeah, I ordered it from Amazon. <laughs> yeah, I got a coma coming. Um, it's kind of like I had a starter jacket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Colorado Rockies. I chose it because of the color, not because of the team. When I was six, I had a, um, a seizure, and I went into a coma for 36 hours. And it was a very strange experience for me because, as I've described it before to you, it was as if no time had passed mm -hmm. at all. I was sitting at the kitchen table. I was drinking my orange juice. And the next thing I knew, I was face down in a hospital bed. Ooh. It was like no time had passed. It's like if somebody just edited out 36 hours of my life and I just jumped from my kitchen table drinking orange juice to face down in a hospital bed. It was very, very strange. I'm sure. But perhaps the strangest thing happened in... And, and, I feel weird sharing this because it's it's just so strange and I, and I don't have any idea what it was other than perhaps, you know, it was just my little six-year-old brain coming out of a seizure or whatever. But I had this very strange mystical type experience the night after I regained consciousness. Mm -hmm. I was lying in my uh, hospital bed in the, on the seventh floor of the uh, of Boston Children's Hospital which was the intensive care ward at the time. Nearest to where we live in Bangor, Maine. That's not far, yes. And I'm lying in bed, and, and, and I'm facing the big wooden door that went into the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of those older wooden doors, and I guess even newer ones, there's a very strange pattern in the grain of the door. Sure. And it looked kind of like the outline of a person. You could see like the head come down and then the shoulders and, you know, that's what it kind of looked like mm -hmm. to me. Kind of like one of those Rorschach ink blot tests or something. I don't know. <laughs> but at one point during the evening, I'm lying there, a figure stepped out of the door and walked over beside my bed and stood there. At least that's what I perceived to have happened. It wasn't frightening. Really? Because... <laughs> I didn't feel frightened. I, I, you know, I was six years old. I it just, it, I didn't feel frightened wow. by it. But I guess when I look back on it and, and how I perceived it, it was, it was kind of a weird, grotesque-looking thing, you know? But, but I didn't feel fear. It was weird. But then the next thing I know, you know, it's gone. And a few hours had gone by, I guess. I don't know. I, I, I just looked around and everything was normal. So I don't know if probably some sort of a hallucination of some sort, but it stuck with me all these years. 
And I've even Googled stuff like that online to see if anybody else has had an experience like that. <laughs> Apparently, I'm the only one. Well, it's hard because what kind of keywords do you use for that? Like grotesque man door grain stepping out guy? Yeah, no, I tried. I tried door goblin. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't work. I love door goblin. <laughs> <laughs> that should be our Wi-Fi password. That's a great door goblin. Door goblin. Well, that's, I mean, that's similar to, I can remember when I was a kid, um, we were camping and I was sleeping in the back of our conversion van and I woke up and there was a small gnome sitting across from me, cross-legged, staring at me, but his eyes were doing that like hypnotic spinning thing. And like on Scooby-Doo. Exactly like that. Yeah. And I just stared at it until eventually I covered my head with a blanket and that makes things like that go away. <laughs> yes. So. That's true. That's true. <laughs> So that was my coma experience. Here are some other people's experiences. I found this on Reddit. Um, one user wrote, I spent eight days in a coma last year after a particularly traumatic surgery. My uh, waking thoughts were wondering if I had died or if I had made it. I couldn't open my eyes, and I was on a medical air mattress, so it felt like I was floating. This led me to think that I had died, and, and I remember thinking it wasn't so bad. I was wondering if my dad was going to come get me. Once I realized that I was still alive, I started thinking that I had been injured fighting in a war and was worried that my wife might not know that I was still alive, even though he hadn't been fighting in a war. That's weird. What I learned later from my wife is that uh, she was there the whole time, and while I was fighting against the doctors and the nurses, I would immediately calm down and cooperate when uh, she held my hand and sang to me. And uh, that still brings tears to my eyes, he says. Oh, my. It's interesting how your brain reacts and sometimes it leaps to certain conclusions Maybe because of associations or yeah. maybe because of yeah. something that you, you, I don't know. And and so it's like, oh, well, this happened? Then this must have been what happened. I must have been in a war. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, that's 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 probably exactly the situation. Uh, Redditor Nitzlarb writes, My dad was in a coma for two months a couple of years ago. Recently, we were talking about the whole thing, and he told me that he had dreamed slash hallucinated that he had lived for 10 years in his coma. He did all the things that he does or would do during that time. He said it was very vivid. He walked across the country a couple of times during this period. He, uh, When he woke up and got home, he said it would throw him off when he would run into people that he hadn't seen for a while since before the coma because he expected them to look 10 years older. Oh, I see. Oh, that's weird because he had already experienced that. Yeah, in his yeah. mind, he had lived 10 years. That's really fascinating. And he remembered all the things that he had done. Weird. Maybe his brain was just bored. It's like, well, I got to do something. I guess we'll walk across the country. <laughs> and then it came across this story. There was an 81-year-old guy who, uh, who was in a coma. He fell out of a plum tree. Um, and it was in a coma for four days. What an 81-year-old is doing climbing a plum tree is beyond me. And plums are delicious. When he came to, he was not an 81-year-old granddad. He was uh, a horny teenager. He became sex mad, and he blew 3,000 pounds of his savings in one session at a local brothel after <laughs> falling head over heels for a hooker, young <laughs> enough to be his granddaughter. I'm glad that you went with, uh, he blew money. Yeah, well, he did. It was money that he yeah. blew. 
His son Daniel had taken control of his dad's two houses and bank accounts. The judges ruled that his sex addiction made him unfit to govern his finances. I feel like I know some people like that. (laughs) And that brings us to our final case. This is fascinating to me. Terry Wallace. Terry Wallace was a 19-year-old kid living in Arkansas in 1984. Mm -hmm. Terry and his buddy Chubb were, uh, were going fishing. And they'd been drinking, and they were in his pickup truck. And Wait, how old was he? 19. Okay. He was 19. Drinking in the pickup truck, and they smashed the truck. It went uh, over a bridge 25 feet into a creek. One of them was ejected from the vehicle. The other one was hanging out of the vehicle. When the paramedics arrived, 24 hours later, they didn't find him for 24 hours. Oh. So they rush him to the hospital. He sustained neck injuries. He was in a coma for 19 years. And then woke up. No. In 2003. Did, how did, what made him wake up? Like, how does that happen? What made him wake up? They don't know. They're not really sure. And they weren't expecting him nope. to? It wasn't like, I mean, after 19 years, I guess you're kind of like, oh, I guess this is just wh- where you're at now. Well, sure. I imagine everybody was telling him, hey, you know what? <laughs> you know, yeah. Whoa. give up hope there after a while. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And what they would do is they would they would make this 25-mile trip to visit him at the at the facility. And then um, some of the, occasionally on the weekends, they would bring him home, thinking that maybe a familiar environment would help trigger some sort of conscious awareness of of where he is and who he is there was nothing apparent that triggered his recovery it's just one day he opened his eyes and said mom whoa can you imagine that oh his first word was mom his first word was mom followed quickly by milk and pepsi oh Mm. he was thirsty then must have i mean it makes sense 19 years Mm. the really interesting thing to me in this case besides the fact that yeah that's pretty miraculous is that he still thinks it's 1984, oh. or he did. I think now he's kind of starting to come to terms with it because it's been another 10, 12 years since he woke up. But they asked him, who's president? He said, Ronald Reagan. At the time of his accident, he had just been married, mm-hmm. and he had a baby daughter named Amber. Amber is now, or was at the time, 19 years old. And a stripper. And a stripper. Did you look that up? <laughs> you ruin all my surprises. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a stripper. <laughs> and um, he just couldn't grasp the idea that his little infant daughter was 19 years old and that that 19-year-old woman standing in front of him yeah. was his baby daughter. And in his mind, he's still thinking he's 19. Right. And I guess he was making sexually lewd comments to her. Oh, no. Not really... Well, understanding he, it's confusing. And, yeah, yeah, sure. I He's mean, you, very thirsty. You got to give him a pass <laughs> on, on that one. Yeah. But apparently, there was a like a, a family feud when he had his accident. His parents sued for full custody and rights to whoever can see him and things like that, and essentially cut his young wife and daughter out of their lives. And the wife, who was very young at the time, like seventeen. Mm. Um, said she didn't know what to do. She had a little infant baby. Her husband had been in this horrible thing, so she didn't fight it. But since he's regained consciousness, she wants back into uh, his life. They complicate the issue a little bit 
even though she's still legally married to him, mm-hmm. she had, I guess, three kids with another guy who has another wife. And so her kids have been living with this guy right. and his other wife. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just confusing. Sure. But the good thing is they've had a couple of times where they've reconnected and 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 she says he's still the love of her life. Aww. Which is really sweet. That is sweet. And apparently he lights up when his, his daughter comes around to see him. You know, she gives him $2 bills and stuff like that. Sure. And, um, yeah, that's always exciting. Yeah. But she has a daughter now, too. So he went to... He went fishing yep. and then woke up and he had a granddaughter. Yep, that's that's really it in a yeah. nutshell. That's nuts. Yep, that's the story of Terry Wallace. Oh, Terry. It's so interesting that uh, there doesn't seem to be any one thing that, that awoke him from a 19-year coma. That's that's yeah blows my mind. Yeah, it's a medical miracle. It's just, oh, it happened. Yep, it just happened. And, and the fact that it, it kind of... I connect to that personally because I understand that feeling, although it's nothing like 19 years, but that feeling, no time having passed right. whatsoever, in, in my case, 36 hours, and it was like being teleported, like on Star Trek or something, to another location in another time. Well, and, and that's that's different because, you, um, you know, different people experience different things, obviously, and you were telling me the other day about a guy who was in a coma but was aware of everything that was going on around him. Yeah. I think that's more terrifying. Yeah. You know, I'd rather be like, what's going on? Hey, guys, 20 years later, than be like, oh, yeah, I've been around. I've had to pee for like days now, and no one will take me. That would be horrible. It would be horrible. It would be. Yeah. I want it known here and now, just unplug me. <laughs> okay. Duly noted. Duly <laughs> Thank noted. you. I'm good. The Box of Oddities. It's not for everyone. Time for that thing in the middle today. Weird things found in Japanese vending machines. I love it. Number five, horned beetles. They're considered both good luck and fun. (laughs) Live beetles are sold at a vending machine so kids can play with them and bug collectors can add them to their collection, like Pokemon. That's so upsetting. Okay, number four, eggs. Eggs like... Just raw eggs. In a vending machine. In a vending machine. I don't think we need to go any further. It's eggs. Number three, lettuce. That's right. They have lettuce vending machines in Japan. There's a picture of one here next to like a row of gumball machines with little kids standing by. Nothing lights up a child's eyes. Like a head of iceberg. Dad, can I have a quarter for a fistful of romaine? Number two. This is a combo. Energy drinks and condoms. Really? You buy one, you get the other? Yep, they come together. They certainly do. (laughs) Ow, at least they should. And the number one weird vending machine item in Japan, yes, used panties. No! Yes, used panties. There aren't many of these machines left. on the internet. (laughs) What? What? What Nothing. Vending machines. All right, there aren't many of them left, but they're still out there. Now, here's the thing. They're not really pre-worn panties. They're panties that are manufactured to look as though they've been used. However they do that, I don't want to know, but that's what they are. And they put the English word used on it to suck in the tourists. Oh, I yeah. see. Well, yeah. that's, that's a terrible disappointment. It's Japanese panty scam. 
It's what it is. That's what, you know, if I had a nickel for every time I heard that, it's a Japanese panty scam. I, I know what the title for this episode is going to be. It's a Japanese panty scam. Yep. <laughs> yes, please, 100 all day long. Ding, ding, ding. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Theboxofoddities.com is our website, and you can send us suggestions, comments, whatever. Uh, at not panties. Not panties, though. Uh, you can send us a, a, a verbal message, shall we say, <laughs> at uh, curator at theboxofoddities.com. What do you have for me this week? All right. So, okay. All right. All right. Okay. This is actually something that I was inspired to do while we were in Ecuador. Um, we were watching television. It was one of those could it be shows and a commercial kept coming on and it was in Spanish and it was all like blah, 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 blah. And I kept wondering if you were hearing what I was hearing because I know you don't speak as much Spanish as I do. Right. Um, so I didn't know if you were thinking the same thing I was thinking every time this commercial would come on. Because um, it was all like, uh, blah, 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 Debe Cooper. blah, blah. And I was like, Debe Cooper. So, DB Cooper. One afternoon, a day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a guy calling himself Dan Cooper boarded Northwest Airlines Flight 305 in Portland, bound for Seattle. He was wearing a dark suit and a black tie and was described as a business executive type. Uh, while in the air, he opened his briefcase, showing a bomb to the flight attendant and hijacked the plane. Yeah, now, that was the day back in the day when you get bombs on airplanes. Now you can't get hairspray. <laughs> no, that was an issue. And yeah, we had a hard I, time twice. I got detained. <laughs> At Ecuadorian Customs, because you had too large a can of hairspray. It your, wasn't hairspray; it was dry shampoo. And they pulled me into the back room, and oh, it was, it was actually quite quite enjoyable. Um, they were very nice. They were very nice. Uh, so the plane landed in Seattle. Uh, the guy demanded two hundred thousand dollars in cash, four parachutes, and food. For the crew before releasing all the passengers with only three pilots and one flight attendant left on board. They took off from Seattle with the marked bills heading south while it was dark and lightly raining in the 45 minutes after takeoff. Cooper sent the flight attendant to the cockpit while donning the parachute tied to the bank bag full of $20 bills to himself. He lowered the rear stairs and somewhere north of Portland, Oregon, jumped into the night. Out of a out of a jumbo jet. Out of a jumbo jet. It wasn't like he jumped out of a small aircraft. Right. He jumped out of a fucking jumbo jet. <laughs> and um, I do want to say I got most of my information um, from Citizen Sleuth and Wikipedia. So there you go. So when the plane landed with the stairs down, they found two remaining parachutes on the seat that Cooper was sitting in and a black tie. So I like that he took his tie off. <laughs> yeah, to jump out before. of a jumbo jet. He's like, you know what? This is not tie business. Um, <laughs> normally for a flight, I would dress uh, appropriately, uh, which uh, this time means a tie. However, this is not tie business. I thought it was pretty ingenious to ask for four parachutes, you know, because if he asked for one, they could just give him one that didn't work. 
Couldn't they give him four that didn't work? Well, but the idea was he was going to, they were concerned that he was going to force other people to jump with him. I suppose. So that's pretty smart. No, it absolutely is. So uh, jets and a helicopter and another aircraft had been scrambled from a nearby Air Force base to follow Cooper's plane. Uh, The military was called in days after the hijacking and approximately a thousand troops search the suspected jump zone on foot and in helicopters. Uh, There was um, the, the plane that was used in the hijacking was flown out over the ocean and the stairs lowered and weights dropped in an attempt to determine when Cooper had jumped. So they, they recreated all kinds of situations to say like, okay, well, if this had happened, then it would have been like this. And if this had happened, then it would have come, you know, like this. Anyway, uh, but no sign of D.B. Cooper was ever discovered. It was actually, he uh, boarded the plane as Dan Cooper, but it was a media miscommunication that led to him being called D.B. Cooper. It was one of those things, kind of like the Ulysses S. Grant thing, you know, where S. isn't really, really his, his yeah. middle but, name. But and let's just face it. D.B. Cooper's a cool name. It does sound cool, doesn't it? Or D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper. Uh, nine years later, in 1980, so uh, just north of Portland on the Columbia River, there was a young boy out and about digging a fire pit in the sand, which I vote yes all day long. I'm pro fire pit. Um, he, his name was that's Brian. Very, that's a very controversial stance <laughs> to be pro fire pit. Um, well, you know me. You know I, I take a stand regardless. You do. And uh, sometimes it's just about fire pits and s'mores. He uncovered three bundles of cash while digging a couple of inches below the surface. And the rubber bands were still intact. And he found a total of $5,800. And uh, it was the the Cooper serial numbers. Mm. It was the first evidence that they'd found since 1971. And that was 1980. So uh, the FBI then searched that area uh, further, analyzed the beach and the river. The river was dredged by Cooper hunters and theories, you know, ran amok how that money got there. And it's, it's an interesting amount and interesting that it was just that and that it was buried a couple feet, a couple of inches below the surface. It wasn't like it was just hanging out on top. But it had been eight years and it was near water. So it could have just been part of the money that fell out during the jump and then washed down a river and streams and then just got covered up with silt. Possibly. Possibly. Or it could have been planted. It could have been. Um, So evidence and uh, expert opinions suggested from the beginning that Cooper probably didn't survive that jump. Um, you know, from the, the experiments that they did and from what we know about enormous planes and that kind of jump. I mean, it just seems unlikely, but his remains were never recovered. Uh, they did, the FBI, though, uh, maintained an active investigation for 45 years. Good Lord. 45 years. That long. Um, despite a case file that grew over 60 volumes in that time period, no definitive conclusions had been reached. There was, uh, okay, let me, uh, na, 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 na. CBS Sacramento, uh, reports that a team of private investigators now believe that they've cracked a code that says that the infamous hijacker who went by the name of Dan Cooper, 
also known as D.B. Cooper, is in fact a man named Robert Rackstraw. Shut the front door. I will not. Rackstraw is a former uh, Stockton resident whose family also lives in Calaveras County. Is that how you pronounce it? Calaveras? I don't know, but it sounds official. County. Okay. So this this letter, um, which I, I guess may, makes sense, is is something that he had given to the, them on the plane, um, was given to a former member of an army intelligence unit that Robert Rackstraw had belonged to and that that service member recognized a set of digits in the letter as a code that he and Rackstraw had used during their time uh, together serving. Really? Applying that code, new words appeared that investigators say point to Rackstraw. It said... Can FBI catch me? SWS, which stood for Special Warfare School, where Rackstraw went to learn coding. Well, now that would make a lot of sense because he would have to have been pretty good at survivalist skills and mm-hmm. that sort of thing to parachute out over the Pacific Northwest and survive. Right. Yes. Um, so uh, there are investigators that believe that Cooper was a CIA operative, and uh, that conclusion was based on on that that letter. And there are some theories. I don't want to say conspiracy theories, but there are some theories that the FBI actually had more information that they than they let us know that they hmm. had about this case, and that they actually either let the Dan Cooper character go. Or that that he was detained and was dealt with internally. Ooh. So, uh, however, this Rackstraw guy, uh, his attorney says that his client lives in San Diego now, still maintains that he is not D.B. Cooper. Uh, The FBI issued a statement after this development. They said they still don't have enough evidence um, to resolve this case. And this case remains the only unsolved air piracy case in commercial aviation history. That's fascinating. Yeah. And the guy's still alive, the, the one that they think may yes. have been interesting. Exactly. And he lives in San Diego. Has the statute of limitations expired on something like that? I, I mean, that's got to be pretty serious. I imagine with federal aviation mm. stuff, there's not much of a of a statute of limitations. I mean, uh, you know, something like personal assault or rape, whatever. Yeah, you've got a couple years. But if it comes to like an airplane and the government's property, probably there's not one. Yeah, whatever (laughs) you do. Whatever you do, don't take oversized hairspray cans on board. Anyway, I just thought I hadn't heard any of that D.B. Cooper stuff. And that just came out um, in like February. That's fascinating. They just... You know, found this this coded message. So I thought that was super fascinating. That is that is fascinating, and I look forward to seeing if they if they follow up on that anymore because um, it would be so cool if they if they finally um, solve know, this case. You know what's cool? Taking her tie off before jumping out of a plane. That's cool. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't steal. <laughs> it's not right. But I mean, that's still pretty cool. Theboxofoddities.com is our website. <laughs> You can send us a massage at uh, curator at theboxofoddities.com. And, of course, find us on social media. Yes. We appreciate all the messages we're getting. And eggs. Eggs? 
Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Send us it. No, don't send us it. God. We appreciate you being here. We appreciate you accepting us for who we are. We'll see you next time. Keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly. Fly it high. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those whom I report to to beseech you for assistance. The Box of Oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2018 All rights reserved